It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. This coming weekend is Father's Day, and I thought it would be nice to talk about our dads more in depth, and probably specifically more my dad, because we've talked about Jason's dad a bunch, but maybe we will talk about your dad in some new ways, Jason. It's so interesting you're bringing this up, Whitney, because one of the first thoughts that I had this morning when I woke up was asking you how your dad's doing. And so it's so interesting that you're broaching this subject for us because, yeah, I I just wanted to check in with you and and see how he was doing. So here you go and bring it up. So apparently we were psychically on the same page, even though we are physically distanced at this moment, we are still on the same page in a lot of ways. So that's just super interesting. And I'm also, I'm excited actually to hear more details about your dad that I probably don't know about. Like what? I don't know, maybe some juicy bits about his youth, his crazy years in his 20s, maybe the wild stuff he did that I don't know about. Maybe singing in some dark piano bars in Boston while he was getting his degrees or some of his musical exploits. I I don't know. I'm hopeful I'm going to learn something where I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. I mean, I suppose there's a lot about my dad that I don't really know or recall. I'm not very good at remembering facts. I do much better when I have them in writing, so I'm not sure I can do much of my dad's history justice. (laughs) When I think about his past, I just think about photos I've seen of him growing up and how it's it's just kind of funny to see him at different stages of his life. And I, I feel like I learned a lot about my dad through my grandfather, his father, who passed away. But I used to interview my grandfather a lot and my dad was often there during those interviews. And I, I'll link to one of the video interviews that I did with my grandfather, which is probably the video I have received the most positive feedback on over the years because it touched a lot of hearts. And I think my grandfather was around 95 when I did that video. And he was just in decently great health at the time. And I interviewed him a couple more times. In fact, The last time I saw my grandfather, I got him on camera and did like a mini interview and he passed away less than 48 hours after that. So I really cherish that video. Anyways, it just kind of shines some light on my dad. And my dad's a a really open book. He'd actually be kind of cool to bring on the podcast. So maybe we can do that someday, (laughs) whether it's in person or remotely. I wonder what type of microphone my dad has. But my dad's got a really great voice and he's very good at presenting. And I think that that actually helped me a lot. Actually, you know, it's funny. I think I'm trying to think of my mom and my sister are good at presenting. I think my mother is. I don't quite know about my sister actually, but my dad does a lot of it. He he does a lot of teaching and he gave me a lot of great qualities, I feel like. And that was my initial inspiration for this, just reflecting on my dad because I haven't brought him up much. I feel like Jason's dad comes up in a lot of our conversations organically. But I I thought it'd be nice to share positive things about our fathers. And and the same goes for you, Jason, because I feel like some of the times that you've talked about your dad, there's some sadness there. You opened up about him recently. Which episode was that where we were talking about him? Well, first of all, if we go way back to 
the intro episodes. I think the second episode I, I talked about him when we were talking about our backgrounds and where we come from, but the episode around toxic masculinity right, was the episode where I got into my work around my forgiveness with my dad and the abandonment issues and looking deeper into the lineage from that side of the family and not just looking at what my dad went through. And again, we never have the whole picture of another human being. I was actually talking to Laura, the woman I'm dating right now about you can go years having someone as a parent or a, a lover or husband, wife, partner, whatever the case may be. And there are layers and stories and experiences we'll just never hear about. But that was the episode where I got a little bit into the lineage healing that I've been doing around specifically the male figures on my dad's side of the family himself, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, and, and learning more about that. And we'll link to that episode for the listener. If you haven't listened to that yet, you could just look for it in your podcast player, or you can go to our website, which is wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. For every single episode that we do, we have show notes, which has a transcript of every episode and links to anything that we reference. And if we're ever missing anything, if like a link got accidentally skipped, let us know in a comment or send us an email or a direct message. And we'll make sure to get that for you because we want to help you go down the rabbit hole of information that we often do on these shows and help you find other related episodes as well. So for me, I think my dad, in terms of what he gave me as qualities that I'm really grateful for, is research. I admire the amount of reading that he does. And I think, I wonder actually, is that did that come from him? Is that a quality that I can directly attribute to my dad? Or is it just that we both happen to really like, you know, it's when you think about how you are shaped as a human being, is it nature versus nurture? And I often wonder if the qualities of us as human beings are nature versus nurture. And I think sometimes it's a combination of it. And it's really hard to pinpoint what shapes us as human beings. So it could be a combination of, I don't know, can you, like, does your passion for research and reading get passed down genetically? Perhaps. I guess a lot of things get passed down to us. My dad's dad was a big researcher. My my mother's father, my grandfather on, on that side, was very studious as well and also a teacher. So I, I have a lot of genetic... <laughs> influence there. And then just the nurturing side of being around my grandparents and my dad. And my dad loves the library as much as I do, if not more. And actually, my very first job was working in a library. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but I have a feeling that came from my father because we spent a lot of time going to the library. And still to this day, when I visit my family, I often end up going to the library with my dad just for fun. In my small hometown, they actually moved the library's location to a historic building and like completely revamped it. And it's just this incredible library. And I'm so grateful for that. And I have so many great memories about working there and just understanding books in a new way and the process of it. And it brings me a lot of joy. And so I just have so many memories of my dad reading a lot. He still to this day has stacks of books and he goes and he puts a hold on them and he'll he'll just go through so many books. And I'm like that too, except now I do it digitally. So I use my library card from Los Angeles to access a phenomenal resource called Libby, L-I-B-B-Y. 
It's part of a service called Overdrive. And that allows you to digitally borrow books and you read them on your computer or a device or listen to them as an audiobook. And I wish we were sponsored by them because that would have been a very organic <laughs> advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. It almost did feel like it, right? Like, wow, Whitney sneaking it in there. Do we have a new sponsor I didn't hear about? She's like, oh yeah, by the way, by the way, Jason, we have a new sponsor. <laughs> yeah. You know, a little side note is I was so disappointed a few months ago, there was a sponsored opportunity with Libby that I applied for from my website and I didn't get it. And I was like, don't they know what they're missing out on? I'm such a natural ambassador for them. But actually, it turns out a lot of people are. That Libby sponsorship was very popular and competitive. And I I just didn't realize that many people loved it as much as I did. So if you, the listener, have not utilized it yet, it is a phenomenal resource. I cannot recommend enough. I literally use it every day to read a book or to listen to an audiobook for free through your library card. So Like my dad, I utilize a library pretty much every single day of my life. And I'm so grateful for it. What an incredible resource. You can spend so much money and resources buying books. And as a side note, I know Jason loves books as much as I do. We each deeply enjoy going to the bookstore and that experience of walking around and checking out what's new and smelling them and purchasing them, especially small bookstores is really wonderful. And it's such a treat going into them because they often have such personality. In fact, Jason, you were with me when we went into that bookstore in New Hampshire with the cat. Oh, absolutely. That was one <laughs> of my most and is one of my most delightful experiences is whenever I go to a new city is going to small independent booksellers. And that was just such a unique experience. because Not only the cat, but the fact that this bookshop was in a converted house, right? Wasn't it? It was someone's house. Yep. Yep. The owner of the bookshop lives above the bookstore with his cat. Goals. Goals right there. (laughs) Goals, goals, goals. Oh my gosh. It's so (laughs) sweet. I've been in there a bunch of times. I think I might've taken my dad in there once actually. And he didn't seem to appreciate it as much as I did. I I think he might be a little bit more fond of libraries than bookstores, but I'm not sure I'd have to ask him that directly. And I would say I, I am too. I like the experience of going into bookstores, but because I'm so used to borrowing books, it seems odd to buy a book these days unless I can't access it through the library because from an environmental standpoint, buying something that you're only going to use once seems kind of silly and it takes up space and clutter. But I will say that I learned from the life-changing magic of tidying up that if you love a book and you read it multiple times and you're going to give it to friends to borrow, then that's a book you should keep. So if I'm ever going to acquire a book, I keep that in mind. I mean, just my dad's love for books and his research skills too have played a big role in my life. I remember growing up, he was really helpful for me understanding to look at multiple sources for information. And my dad works in the legal world. So he's he's worked as a lawyer and he's worked in a lot of different elements of the legal system. And so I, I think he's always looking at it from that lens and has been very studious and really into data and and just making sure you get the right facts. And I've just had so many moments in my life, whether I was in school or I was making YouTube videos, my dad would review them and see them through the lens of like the non-bias, like critical perspective. And he would often play the devil's advocate, which would drive me crazy sometimes because I just wanted him to like agree with me. (laughs) But 
that was a really good skill for me to to develop. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. So also, the other big thing that shaped me as a person from my dad is technology. And man, am I grateful for that because growing up, I feel like an, un- actually until semi-recently, and maybe this is still kind of the case, but definitely when I was growing up, I was one of very few women that understood technology as well as I did. I learned this from my dad and he probably was influenced by his father. And again, my my mom's dad was like this too. They were all very into creating things. My mom's dad was actually an inventor and he created all sorts of really interesting things and has patents. And that was really fascinating. And my dad's dad had like this really cool tool shop in the basement of his home. And so they were always like fiddling with electronics. And my dad would get computers and various devices. I remember we had a video camera fairly early on and he would research like stereos to buy and all that stuff. And he wouldn't go over the top. He wouldn't like buy everything when it came out, but he would like dig into the best things whenever he was going to buy something. And computers were something I had access to fairly early on. And and it's so interesting how much has changed just over my lifetime and Jason's lifetime. And I don't know how old you are as a listener, but it's just remarkable. We take computers for granted, but not that long ago, they were really expensive and not every family had them. And so having access to a computer and understanding how to use a computer was was actually a rare skill when I was a little girl. And my dad took me to, to a computer museum. What? I was just thinking about this the other day. A and computer I, museum? <laughs> Yes, because like, again, Jason, you and I both grew up during a huge evolution of technology and computers in particular. And so there was a museum in Boston or Cambridge. I grew up in Massachusetts. And one of those two cities where my my dad worked in Cambridge and my mom worked in Boston. So I was in the city with them every once in a while. And anyways, he one, on one of my trips with him, he took me to the computer museum and it was this whole museum dedicated to the history of computing and it was interactive. So you could go into all these different exhibits and they talked about computing. It was so cool. I remember there being like a giant keyboard and a giant mouse. And I remember they're showing how computers worked. And there was like some exhibit where they showed all the zeros and ones and how that displayed the information. And I don't remember exactly how old I was, but let's just say around 10 is what I would estimate. And I'll have to look it up because that was just really cool. You know, my my dad was into that stuff. So we would go together and he showed me how to use the computer. And I think it's interesting now that's such a common thing. I mean, little kids at like two or three years old know how to use iPhones. So it was kind of like the equivalent of that. But again, just having the access to that, those tools gave me so much confidence and love for technology. And so I also developed my skills with video equipment very early on because my dad had a video camera and my grandfather was also really into that too. So growing up, I have footage of myself from just a few years old. And again, not to date myself too much, but that's not something that everybody had at a young age. And they didn't necessarily have parents that wanted to document their lives as much as my dad did and my grandfather did. And so by seeing them use all this technology, I started to find an interest in it. And 
I had access to this equipment and I was able to hone my skills very young. And that really shaped my career path. I loved the camera so much as a little girl that I got very passionate about filmmaking in my teens and then went to summer film programs in high school and then eventually went to film school. And that really all started with my dad and his father and their camera equipment, you know, and then my computer skills. Again, I I noticed throughout high school and college and even to this day, there's a, a level of confidence and joy that I have around technology that not everybody I know has. Well, here's a question that arises in all of this and your background with your dad and your grandpa wit is the combination of having a curious questioner mind. We've talked about that before. Of you, you have the questioner archetype, the mindset, combined with the skill set you learn from your dad in terms of fact-checking and researching multiple sources. And then you add this layer of technological prowess. You and I have, I guess, brushed on this or touched on it, but I'm curious how all of those things have coalesced in this moment where there's so much information being bombarded at us online and on the news all the time. How do all those skill sets help you in this moment on planet Earth in 2020, which has been a crazy year so far, to sort through all the bombardment of information that we're getting on a constant basis? How do all those skill sets help you with that? Hmm. Well, I also think attributing my dad's skills as a presenter and a teacher. And also, he worked at Harvard Law School for a significant portion of my childhood. And then he started his own business and left there. But I was at Harvard Law School a lot as a little kid and a preteen and being exposed to that environment too, which is very studious. And Harvard is just this institution based on like very educated people. And so I was just around that administrative environment. He worked like in an admin element, I think, and taught there at some point. I don't know. I still get confused on my dad's history sometimes, to be honest. But I would be in his office and around all these other people that were using equipment. And I just loved like working in an office setting. (laughs) As a kid, I would like pretend that I worked there too. And just seeing my dad and as a kid, you kind of naturally mimic them in some ways. And so I think that combination of, of liking the administration stuff and seeing how people were presenting and teaching and using technology and creating content. I mean, that's basically a lot of my major skills right now. And for me, I'm the person in my friend group that understands technology. So people come to me and sometimes hire me for that. And my dad wasn't, I would say, like a big part of my social media development. I'm trying to think back. We certainly would talk about things like Twitter and Facebook as those evolved as platforms, he's, he doesn't use Instagram or TikTok, which, you know, the latter of which I love so much. But um, I bet you he probably influenced those things as well. And so, I, but without my tech background and my teaching background, my coaching, all the stuff that I've been doing, a lot of the things that I do for work now as a consultant probably wouldn't be quite as strong, if that makes sense. And I think part of what I add as value to people is my research skills. I would say like that's one of the biggest things I can help people with because there is a lot of information, Jason. And I've learned a skill to not only find that information, but be able to help people feel less overwhelmed with it. I don't get super overwhelmed with information, at least over time. Sometimes I'll like today, for example, I was 
trying to compare products on Amazon and it's frustrating. You know, it's like you have all these comparable products. They're all about the same price. But I really enjoy the process of narrowing things down. And so does my dad. In fact, he has been working on this project for 10 to 15 years that is based around helping people make decisions. My dad's really passionate about that. And I would say that's a skill set of mine and a passion of mine too, is like, how can I support people in figuring out what's best for them? And my dad and I really share that. And I, I don't know, it's just, I guess in this moment, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like, wow, is that nature or nurture? Like, how is it that my dad have so much in common? You know what I mean? Because when I think of how I developed as a person, sure, so much of our development is based in childhood. But a lot of these skills, I feel like, came out of my adult life, like through college or after college. So how is it my dad has had such a huge impact? Is it in my genes or did he really set the stage for me as a person when I was little? It's an interesting question because in in my observation too, just looking at the whole picture of your family, I feel like your personality traits and how you're wired and what you're passionate about, Whitney, mimics your dad, whereas I feel like your sister more mimics your mom. And you and I have talked about that, but it's fascinating now that you're talking about your dad to see that. I don't know. I think genetics are interesting, right? If we, when we've talked about epigenetics here on the show, which is your favorite word to pronounce, it was was a joke. It was a bad joke. You didn't laugh. It's okay. I'm on mute, but yeah, I was laughing. I was laughing inside, Jason. Don't worry. Okay. I was like, whoa, that one failed horribly. (laughs) Epigenetics is this idea that we have predispositions to certain expressions in our health or our physiology or our life passions or the way we think about things. And that it doesn't guarantee that our genetics are going to predestine something to come to fruition in our life, but we have a predisposition to those things. So I wonder in terms of your passions, your interests, your talents, if those are things that, yeah, I don't know, on some cerebral level, you were predisposed to enjoy, maybe because they're a genetic gift or your talents are genetically inherited, and it was easy for you to develop those things because you were naturally passionate about them? Or was it simply by the fact that you said you spent so much time with your dad in his work environments, which I think is also semi-unusual because if I think about both of my parents, I didn't necessarily spend even a moderate of time around them in their work environments. So I think you having that time with your dad in those, in those arenas, to me, that's really unusual and interesting. Yeah, it it might not have been that much. I just think some of my favorite selective memories come from that. I think my mother's workplace had this as well. It might have been like a countrywide initiative, but growing up, they had Bring Your Daughter to Work Day. And I think the aim was to help educate women and show them the options for your career. And so, I mean, I was really blessed that my dad was working at Harvard Law School at the time. And it was just neat. And I think part of it was the trust that my parents had with me as a kid, but also the time that we were raised in because my dad would just let me do whatever I wanted. So I remember like roaming the halls of Harvard Law School by myself as a kid, going to the vending machines and going around the different areas. I would just memorize the layout of that place. And I have so many fond memories of being at work with him. And I also remember... (laughs) having access to the internet early on. And again, it's just so incredible to think about what's happened during our lifetime. But the internet really rose as I was a little girl. And and Jason, I'm sure you have memories of this as well. Because my dad was at Harvard Law School, he probably had different access than a lot of other people did considering 
internet was expensive and complicated and unknown. And so educational institutions often had access to internet in ways that we might not at home. And so I remember using chat rooms really early on and Netscape. Did you ever use Netscape, Jason? Pre-Google? Hell yeah. (laughs) Netscape Navigator. There was also (laughs) AltaVista was a search engine. Oh, yeah. Yep. I remember AltaVista. I remember Mm -hmm. Net Zero. Yep. Man, that is like, all that stuff is pre.com crash. That's like 94 to 99, that five-year period when all, it's so crazy how huge those things were too. Oh, yeah. And those are the things I was discovering through my dad. So he was allowing me to utilize that and explore. And that was a huge part of our developments as preteens and teenagers and just like, especially during that age too, you're so curious. And I remember going to the chat rooms and like flirting with people that might have been like in their 40s, but were pretending to be my age. Like, who knows? (laughs) Yeah, there was no way to know. Right. You could just make up a whole story about yourself. It was like, catfishing ahead of its time, or also uh, maybe pedophilia, unfortunately. But it was dangerous and yet very innocent at the same time. And luckily, I think because the internet was so new, like we didn't even know it was possible. And people were just exploring. And it was really neat. What a gift to be able to witness that development in our lifetimes. And anyways, I'm grateful that my dad was interested enough and had access to those things. So I got access as well. And I got to do some of those things with my mom, but I, I only have like a couple memories of my mom's office in Boston. But my dad's like, I feel like I went there a lot more. And I remember during one of the bring your daughter to work days, like we got to go and, oh, actually two great memories come to mind. One was that we could sit in on classes at Harvard Law School. You know, <laughs> like here I am, this young kid, like watching these lectures, which are probably incredibly boring. But I also remember thinking it was really neat. And then also around that time, webcams were being developed and they showed us like a video webcam stream and we got to like talk to somebody through the webcam and we were all like, what the heck? But it was like horrible quality, but nobody had that. I mean, this was way ahead of its time. Webcams still to this day are in development. I mean, they're not even like FaceTime and Skype and Zoom, like they're not perfect. They're still confusing and quality issues. So like think about 20 plus years ago, just being able to see that and think like, oh, but that's only something you can do at Harvard Law School. But now we have access to that. Everybody has a access to some sort of camera. So yeah, that was cool. It was really neat and a great gift and certainly a version of privilege too. You know, I think it's important we're each shaped by our families and some of us have access to things that other people don't have access to. And I think that's really important to be aware of, of how our parents shape our lives. And I wanted to talk about your dad too, because I feel like for me overall, I can't even like think of anything that bad about my dad. And that's such a huge blessing. My dad has given me so much and been such a huge source of love and support and Everything negative about him feels so minor to me. (laughs) And that in itself is a massive privilege. He's still in my life. He's healthy. He's wise. And we just have a really great relationship. And I'm really grateful for that. And 
Jason, your dad's no longer in your life or anybody's life at this point. And I would love to hear maybe some positive things, like positive memories that you have of your father and maybe positive things that you've learned about him. What comes to mind around that? Well, first of all, I love how you were being very kind and gentle about like he's no longer in your life and he's no longer in anyone else's life, which means he's dead, (laughs) which means, yes, my father is dead. He's no longer in his body. It's a difficult thing to bring up, Whitney, because I have very, very few memories that I can recall of positive memories with my father. Most of the things that I recall about my direct experience with my dad is things that were challenging and painful and confusing and filled with fear and filled with a lot of pain for me. So it is a bit difficult in this moment, to be honest with you, to exhume some feelings or memories around my dad who are positive or joyful. One memory that does come to mind, though, we grew up in Detroit, in the city of Detroit, and and we had a, a house on Fielding Street that had a, it had a double lot. So whatever the standard lot size in Detroit was, we had double that amount. So we had We had a lot of space. We had a huge yard, and I remember it would take forever to cut and trim the grass at our house. When I was really, really little, and my dad was still around, he and my mom were together, they would invite family over. I was really, really connected to my mom's family, still am, less so to my dad's side. And my dad's family was split between Puerto Rico, where he grew up and was raised, and then a lot of the family actually came to Detroit. So my grandfather actually was the first one from my knowledge, his dad, to come to Detroit to work for the auto industry because there were opportunities here and there was money here. And it was, from what I understand, pretty challenging to make a living in the small village he grew up in in Puerto Rico called Naranjito. So my grandfather came over and then I guess when my dad was in his late teens, early 20s, he also moved to Detroit. This might be the only positive memory I can think of in this moment. We were having a family gathering at my house in Detroit. I remember us being in our yard, our huge grass yard. And my cousin, Ricky, Ricky St. James came over. Now, now Ricky was the first cousin I remember being like, I want to be like him when I grow up. Because my cousin, Ricky St. James, was a guitar player in a band called the Motor City Bad Boys, a rock band in Detroit. And he drove a Trans Am with the screaming fire chicken on the hood, like Smokey and the Bandit shit. And he had two giant dogs, Bouviers were the dogs. And these dogs were so huge that, and I remember this this is one, one of my earliest memories at maybe three years old, they would put me on the back of these dogs and I would ride the dogs around the backyard like they were horses. That's how huge these dogs were and how little I was at the time. So one of the fond memories I remember is getting together with my grandma and my grandpa on my dad's side and our cousins and extended family, a few of his brothers and sisters, and we would have just family gatherings. And I just remember my cousin's badass car, which my father always had incredible cars growing up. That's probably one of the reasons that I have such a deep love for cars, not only growing up in Detroit, the Motor City, but my mom and dad had some unbelievable cool vintage automobiles growing up. I mean, the stuff that if you're a car person, you'd be like, I can't believe he had that stuff. So that's just one of the first fond memories I think I can recall in this moment is just the few family gatherings we had with his side of the family and the cars and the dogs. And I don't remember the last time I thought about that memory. It's been years and years and years. But that's in this moment, like probably the only joyful memory of my dad I can recall. Mm. 
While I hope this conversation triggers more joyful moments, it's important for us to focus on the positive. And I also wonder, because of the way our brains work, if we think the same thoughts over and over and over again, we're basically training ourselves to think that way. We're reinforcing those beliefs. And so I wonder like, what positive memories may be stored within you that you don't recall simply because you're out of practice of thinking of them. To me, when I think about your dad, I'm focused on the negative things that you've told me. I mean, I feel like that's the lens in which you see your father. But there's also the Shel Silverstein story. <laughs> that's pretty fun, too. That's pretty fun. We shared that, I think, in uh, the episode with Ruby Roth that we did. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. If you haven't listened to that, it's actually one of my favorite episodes. And there's a brief moment that we shared the little anecdote of Shel Silverstein. So you can listen to that episode if you're curious about it. But I certainly think the car side of things impacted you with your dad. But it sounds like that comes from your, your mom as well. The two of them shared a fondness for cars and you got to experience a lot of interesting cars in your lifetime. I mean, wasn't there the car that your dad had that your mom sold or, or they sold together or something like that? Oh my God. I know what you're talking about. Okay. So a little bit of backstory. So before my mom and my dad got together as romantic partners, they were both into automobiles. My mom's first car in Detroit was like an old, I think it was like a 1955 Porsche Cabriolet, like her first car. But back then, they're not what they are now. You know what I mean? You could go out and get an old 15-year-old Porsche and it was not a big deal. It's not this thing that it is nowadays of like, oh my God, you bought a Porsche. So my mom was into cars. My mom actually rode motorcycles. And then when her and my dad met, they had that kind of shared affinity. But probably the most, and I could go on and on about the cars they had, but the most famous story is that my father, one of the things my dad did as a business is he would go and hunt down barn finds. And barn finds are still something that happens to this day. I'll, I'll click on automotive websites and they'll be like, you know, a Ferrari GTO was discovered in a barn in Arkansas and it's worth $14 million. I mean, this kind of stuff still happens. It's rare. But back in the 60s and 70s, my dad was doing this stuff. He was going down south, going to smaller towns and smaller cities and finding these automobiles that people had stored in their barns for years and years and years and didn't know what they were and needed restoration. So my dad would buy these cars from these people that didn't really know what they were, didn't care, and he would restore them and then resell them for a profit. So some of the cars my mom and dad kept, we had Jaguar E-types, we had Porsche Cabriolets, we had Excaliburs, we had Alfa Romeos, we had Triumphs. I mean, we had some cool... I mean, I look back on some of those pictures, Whitney, and I was so little, I didn't know what they were at the time. But now I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe we had that stuff. But the most famous car that we had, I think it was a 66, 67, late 60s Shelby 427 Cobra. My dad had it for years in the late 70s and early 80s. My mom and dad tell me stories about racing Camaros and Corvettes. And, and basically at that time, that was one of the fastest cars ever, the Shelby 427 Cobra. I mean, back then it was zero to 16, like 4.1, 4.2 seconds, or they would just destroy anybody on the road. It was so fast for that time. My dad ended up selling the car in the early 80s to George Stouffer, which if you've heard about the Stouffer, like 
corporation. Like he was the heir to that fortune. Like Stouffer mac and cheese. I believe so. Yes. <laughs> Correct. So George Stouffer, I don't know how my dad found George Stouffer, this really rich guy, but he sold it to George Stouffer for in the early eighties, I think for like 50 grand, something like that. It was like around $50,000. Fast forward to now and prices have dipped a little bit. Okay. But as a ballpark figure, if you go to a Sotheby's auctions or a Pebble Beach or a Mecham auto auctions, the big auto auctions, you a few years ago would routinely see late 60s, well-maintained Shelby 427 Cobras for going over a million dollars, a million dollars for a car, right? And so to this day, I'm always like, why did you sell that fucking car? Why? 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 Like out of all the cars, that's the one that it's like, it's a legend. I think I've only ever, and I've gone to a lot of car shows, I think I've only ever seen one original Shelby 427 Cobra in my life. I don't know how many there are in the world anymore. It'd be interesting to Google that and look it up, but there's not many. So that was the one car that like, when I knew about what it was and asked my mom about it, I was like, why did you allow him to sell that car? But of course, at that time, 50K in the early 80s was like, yeah, okay, we, we made a nice profit on it. There's no way they could have predicted that car was going to sell for a million, 1.5, 2.5. I mean, there was just no way of knowing that. So that's the one that got away. And that's probably the most famous car from the stable that we had growing up. That kind of reminds me of an opposite story. After my grandfather passed away, my family ended up selling his house and we had to go through everything because my grandmother had passed away, let's see, four years previous to my grandfather. And he was still living in their their home up until towards the end. And we finally went through everything in the home. And the one thing that my grandmother kind of left behind as part of like the family inheritance was this prized possession of Beanie Babies. She was obsessed with Beanie Babies when they came out and would keep them in mint condition. And so we had this like feeling in the family that they were going to be worth so much money but it turned out that they were virtually worthless. And it was just kind of sad in a way because my grandma, I think, saved them for us to sell after she passed away. And yep, didn't turn out to be quite the investment that she was hoping. She was banking on the Beanie Babies, though. <laughs> they were, though, to her point, though, I remember when people were reselling those Beanie Babies wit that at a time when eBay first came out, right, in the mid-90s-ish, I remember those Beanie Babies reselling for crazy amounts of money. Yep. And maybe some of the items in her collection could have, but it was kind of like it was more trouble than it was worth and nobody cared enough for us to figure out how to sell them and on and on. So maybe we missed out, but <laughs> that's what comes to mind. It's funny how certain things can collect value over time or things that you think are going to be valuable end up not being valuable, you know? It's hard to predict. I mean, as a side note, since I am clearly a car guy and had that in my blood from my family and my mom and my dad, I just read as a completely tangential aside and never knowing how to predict this kind of stuff. I'm a big fan of Honda cars. I've had a lot of Hondas in my life and modified them and had race engines put in and all that stuff. There was a 1999 Honda Civic Si, just a run of the mill Civic, right? That sold the other day for $50,000. Because apparently now, the 90s Japanese sports cars, like even the minor ones like the Civics, the ones that are completely unrestored and unmolested and in really great condition are selling for crazy amounts of money. So 
the other day, like, and who would predict that? Like, I'm going to go spend $10,000 on a Civic back in the 90s and just sold it for like 50 grand. There's no way to predict that kind of stuff. Yep. A lot of times it's just pure luck. It's fascinating reflecting on all of these things. And my heart goes out to you, Jason, because again, I do feel like it's a privilege to have a lot of memories with your parents. And I know you cherish that so much with your mother. And it'd just be interesting to be able to go back and see what you could find out about your dad. You know, one of the greatest things my dad did was he has journal entries from the day I was born and he didn't continue them. But I do have like these wonderful little entries that he wrote my first few days of life that I I cherish and are are just a sweet thing to have. And my dad's like a very heart-centered person too. And he's passionate about health as well. And I was reflecting on how that's impacted me. Like I remember learning about the harm of sugar from my dad and, and the various phases that we would go through as a family. And and now we educate each other and we share information about food. And I tend to share a little bit more with him, but he loves trying different things. And that's interesting to see how that developed. And my dad was like passionate about a lot of natural remedies. Like I remember him experimenting with St. John's wort as like how that could impact his mood. And I just, when I was talking to him the other day, actually, the most recent conversation I had, he was telling me how he is so consistent with his walking. That is a huge part of my dad's life is taking walks in the neighborhood that he lives in. And he said that he can't even remember the last time he skipped a walk. I mean, that's dedication and consistency that is incredibly remarkable. And that's my dad's main source of working out. He's gone through phases actually of doing Pilates, believe it or not. I don't know if I've told you that, Jason, but I think it was like last year he got into doing Pilates. And I'm like, I could never imagine my dad doing that. And off and on throughout my life, he'd like try different things. But walking has been the most consistent. And it, you know, there's a lot of research that shows how much walking can impact your health. And It seems so simple and such a small thing, but it's low impact and it's great for your body in so many different ways and your mental state. My dad is known to bring audio recording devices with him. I don't know exactly if he still uses them today and which one he uses or if he uses his iPhone, but for years and years, he will record his thoughts as he takes walks and then he'll go home and take notes based on those recordings. And that's where he'll get ideas for his work and maybe just ideas on life. And you'll hear him in his office, his home office, like listening back to the thoughts that he shared with himself. And (laughs) I just think that's so cool. And I do that in my own way as well. And it's just such a shared thing. But I think mentally, taking that daily walk is so important to him. He, he even does it when it rains. And some of the times that I've visited my family, I'll be home and I've actually got the car. If it starts like pouring rain, I'll sometimes I'll like drive and try to see if I can find him because he won't even bring an umbrella, you know, but he's, he's like wow. unfazed by the rain. He'll just like, yep, I'm going for a rain and I'm, I'm going for a walk. And I hope that I'll dodge some of the rain and, and he'll like, do a big loop. I don't know how far exactly he walks, but usually half an hour to an hour every single day. Even in the middle of the legendary Massachusetts winter, he'll do Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, he has his hat and his jackets and his gloves and he's committed. And luckily where my parents live, there's 
a lot of different paths that you can take. And it's so wonderful. It's a small town. So it's like he'll go through these trails in the woods or he'll go on the street and he knows like which areas are good for different times of year. And he runs into the same people. I just, it's so sweet. You know I I mean, that's one thing I don't like about Los Angeles is that it would be really nice to live somewhere that that peaceful because I like taking walks too. And in LA, it's really hard to find a peaceful area. Even the trails out here, they're nice, but you're still constantly surrounded by people. And I love that idea of the solitude through nature just sounds so nice. So that's something I cherish whenever I'm visiting my parents. I go for walks with my dad or walks by myself and take my dog. And it's just so lovely. And Jason's been on them too. Oh, it's great. It's such an antidote to the chaos and frenetic energy of city life. And I think it's the contrast too, right? Because I've lived in big cities my entire life, whereas you, Whitney, grew up in a, I wouldn't call it rural because people maybe have a, but more rural than the city for sure. I mean, growing up in a small town surrounded by as much nature as it is, because having been there many, many times, it always feels like your nervous system does this. Ah, like it just decompresses and relaxes. And there are times when I definitely fantasize about escaping the city because I wonder how much more energy I would have to be creative, perhaps, if I didn't have the pressures and stress of city life, or is the crazy pressures and stress of city life feeding the creativity? I don't know. This is kind of a tangential conversation, but remembering the feeling that I get when I go visit your family and, and we go to the town you grew up in, it always feels so nice to just slow down and not rush so much. That's one of the biggest benefits I feel. And for me, growing up in Detroit and living in Chicago and New York and the Bay Area and LA, and it's like, wow, from big city to big city to big city to big city, I'm always curious how my body and my physiology and my mind would respond by being more in an environment like that. Well, speaking of our fathers too, it's interesting because you grew up in Detroit. Obviously, that's where your parents had you. But then your father came out to Los Angeles and you kind of, would you say followed him in a way or were you inspired by him? Did your decision to move out here have anything to do with him per se? Oh, 100%. Yeah, because when I was little, so as a backstory, just really, really quickly, when my dad came over to Detroit from Puerto Rico after my grandfather, his dad came over, my dad actually worked as a stonemason. And he would build fireplaces and indoor, like really cool stonework inside people's houses. And my dad apparently was very skilled at that. But as he went on through life, he got into the car thing and was doing the restoration of classic cars, as I mentioned. And the thing that got him out to LA was one of close family friends named Bill actually moved out to work at UCLA in the mid 70s. This was like maybe a little bit before I came on the scene. And my mom and dad actually lived in LA in the early 70s. They had a place in North Hollywood and they had a place in Beechwood Canyon. So my mom and dad actually lived in LA for a spell. And there's a whole interesting story about Patty Hearst and the Black Panthers and my mom and kidnapping. And maybe at the end of the podcast, we'll get into that. But that's an aside. We better get into that because I want to hear that story. Okay. All right. We'll put a pin in the Black Panthers kidnapping Patty Hearst story and my mom. It's a funny one. So my mom and dad lived in LA. They were kind of toying with the idea after I was born in 1977, there was a debate of whether or not they were going to raise me in LA or raise me in Detroit. So here's what happened with my dad and why my dad moved to LA. My dad was doing the car thing. 
He had a Jaguar XKE, one of the most beautiful cars ever made. Absolutely gorgeous. I actually want to put a a link to the Wikipedia for this car in the show notes because it's stunning. My dad had a Jag XKE he restored and he was out in LA and there was a famous movie producer, TV producer back in the day called Mickey Spillane. And he was probably most known at that time for the Mike Hammer detective series starring Stacey Keach. So my dad's hanging out with Mickey Spillane. Mickey Spillane wants to buy this Jag XKE from my dad. My dad, as the story goes, says to Mickey Splane, I'll give you a good deal on the car. You have to write me in to an episode of my camera. Like the balls on this guy. Are you kidding? Like, that's one thing I want to give my dad a shout out for. My dad had this ability, and I will call it a magical ability, to say and ask for things and do things that were like the balls on this guy. But he would kick down doors and open doors that he had no business being in. Case in point, next thing you know, Mickey Splane says, fine, buys the Jag for my dad, writes my dad as a walk-on role. My dad had like one line in a Mike Hammer TV episode. Next thing you know, my dad gets an agent. He starts being a day player on TV. My dad was in multiple TV series. He was in Simon and Simon. He was on the A-Team. He was in Casablanca, which was a TV series. Have you seen these episodes? I have. And as a kid, I'm back in Detroit. And when my dad was on TV, I remember being, this is actually a joyful memory too, being excited to see my dad on TV. Like my mom would be like, oh, his episode's coming on and like watching my dad get the shit kicked out of him by Mr. T on the A-team or something like that. And my dad was a pretty intimidating looking dude. He had a shaved head. He had a jet black giant beard. He was really muscular. So my dad was getting cast as, you know, the villain, the drug runner, the thug, the bad guy. Like my dad was good at that. So my dad, out of nowhere, by telling Mickey Splane, I'm going to hook you up with this Jag if you write me into a TV episode, my dad suddenly has an acting career. Never had a day of training and acting in his life, right? So one of the most joyful, I guess, qualities that I think maybe I've inherited a little bit from my dad is we call it chutzpah, like panache. Like he could just walk into a room, find someone, ask for something he wanted and get it. Like he just, he, he had this ability to just kick doors down and be in a room of like, what the hell am I, you know, but he believed he belonged there. Like he had that confidence. So to answer your question a roundabout way, yeah, I, I had this desire to live in LA because my dad would send me Polaroids and he would send me pictures of being on set with Harrison Ford and Hervé Villachez and being on Fantasy Island and working with all these actors. And as a kid, I'm like, what is this crazy fantasy land? Here's my dad at the beach. Here's him in the Hollywood Hills. It, it was so opposite of the Detroit experience. And I got mad love for Detroit. I do. But there's no mountains in LA. There's no the ocean. That's LA seemed like a different reality. It seemed like a different planet to me as a kid. So I developed this obsession with wanting to be in LA, even as a little kid. And to be honest, it was part of the fantastical element that I, I guess, projected onto LA. But It was also that I felt this massive distance, this emotional chasm from my dad. And I've thought about this a lot, Whit. I think part of me coming out here as an adult in my mid to late 20s when I moved out here was to fill that childhood dream. But it was also this idea of I'm going to do better than my father did because long story short, my dad ended up through, you know, really diving into alcohol and drug addiction in a way, sabotaging his acting career. He would show up late consistently to sets. People wouldn't want to work with him. And then eventually he just stopped getting calls for gigs. So there was this idea that I'm going to do better than him. I'm going to come to Hollywood. I'm going to make it in my chosen industry. And that was kind of like 
a mission of mine. Like I'm going to, I'm going to outdo him. I'm going to do better. I'm going to show everyone I could do better than dad. It was, I don't know why I had that in my mind. So it was kind of a dualistic motivation to come out here of the childhood fantasy of being in LA, but somehow wanting to exceed the success that my father had had, had in Hollywood. And it was, is, is really interesting. I I'm reflecting on those in, in a deeper way in this moment as you're, as you're asking me that question. And I, I think in a way that motivation to like outdo my dad or do better than him or, or fulfill the dream of having my own TV series that he was never able to do. I, maybe it was a cry for love. Like, see, dad, I did better than you, right? Like all the gifts you gave me or the things you, you never saw me develop as a kid. Like I did better than you. I conquered it. I don't know. And, and then after that was all said and done, I just realized now years later, I don't really have that motivation anymore. You know, at the time I did in my twenties and thirties, it definitely was this pull to like, I've got to prove I, I did better than him. But after all that went down, I don't know, it kind of that motivation dissipated. I don't really have that in me anymore. It is certainly interesting. And it, in contrast for me, I think it was like, how can I make my dad proud? How can I impress him? And to this day, my sister and I both share this desire to get my dad excited about things. Like we love sharing things with my dad and seeing his reaction. And sometimes my dad has like really pleasing reactions to things. And sometimes he just seems kind of nonchalant about it. (laughs) And like for us, my sister and I have an ongoing joke about like bringing him food and and seeing his opinion on food. Like, hey, dad, you got to try this. And we would like save things from restaurants just so our dad could have a bite of it. Or we'd make food and get my dad to taste test it and, and just be so happy if he approved of it. And I think that's true in a lot of different ways because my dad does have such a discerning side about him. Like when he would approve of something, it was so satisfying and it was a form of bonding. And I think just growing up wanting my dad to be proud of me, which I I think he is, and he certainly shows it to me. But as a kid, you view it through a different lens and then you get into that pattern of seeking out approval and wanting to impress our parents is such a huge part of our relationships in different ways, you know? And It's super fascinating, especially as you get older. I mean, again, Jason, in my case with my dad still being alive, our relationship has a chance to change. And that's not something that that you had. And and hopefully it, it doesn't feel like a sore spot for you. You have that with your mom, which is wonderful and seeing that friendship with her. And I, you know, it is something that I'm curious about. Like, what would your relationship be with like your dad right now if he was still alive? Do you think about that? Do you think that do you kind of fantasize about whether or not he would be in your life and what that could have been? Hmm. I suppose from time to time, I wonder if he had made different choices and if I had made different choices, what that would have resulted in. I do sometimes ponder that alternate reality, if we want to call it. I think that my longing for something that cannot be has dissipated a lot by virtue of having a father figure in my life, my mentor, Michael, that we've mentioned multiple times on this podcast. Michael's been in my life for almost a decade now and has really served as not just a spiritual slash life mentor, but really providing me with some masculine guidance and grounding and perspective and love that I didn't receive from my father. So the feelings that I have, I suppose, of projecting of what might have been or what could have been. It's certainly, like I said, has 
dissipated with the bond that I've created with Michael. But I do think about if my father had not fallen into drug and alcohol addiction or not fallen into, I guess, some of the business dealings and decisions he made, I don't think that my father started off on a dark path. I think that through, as I mentioned this in the toxic masculinity episode, through his own unresolved trauma and pain with his father and his lineage, it just kind of there were subconscious things driving him into addiction and decisions he made that I don't think he was fully aware of. And I talked about that in that episode in more depth. But one thing that I ruminate on wit is the last time that I physically saw my dad was Thanksgiving of 2005. And I had just moved out to LA in September of that year. So I was only here for a few months. And I saw my dad My dad was homeless. He had been homeless for a few years. The prior to that, the last time I saw my dad was in prison in 2001. So I hadn't seen him in four years. And he was on the streets and living on the streets. And I had about three hours with him in Westwood, if anyone's familiar with that neighborhood in Los Angeles. And we walked around Westwood and we talked and just had a really deep conversation. And I remember buying him lunch and feeding him and the surreality of that, of seeing one of your parents homeless on the street, like I can't quite put into words how bizarre and surreal and heartbreaking that is on so many levels. It's really hard to summarize what that feels like. And I think back to that time, the last time I saw my father, he passed away in 2010. But again, the last time I physically saw him was 05. And I wonder, should I have done more? I wonder should I have, I don't know, you know, let him live with me or force him to go to rehab or, or tough loved it. And like, you know, you can make it out of this. And, and if I should have put more love and energy and time into trying to help him get out of that state of being. So if there's one thing that I ruminate on, it's that to be honest, I don't know, maybe it's because I was in my twenties and I was struggling to make it in LA and I had just moved here and I had my own shit to deal with. Or if I just felt in a way that maybe this was his own doing and he was too far gone on a certain level. But one thing I do, yeah, I ruminate and think about is I think if this were to happen now and I were to meet my dad under those circumstances now, I think I I may have responded differently. I think I may have like not forced him, but been like, you're going to go get help. I'm going to help you. I'm going to feed you. I think I would have put a different kind of love into that situation than I did when I was in my 20s. Well, I think that that's greatly impacted your desire to help other people right now. I mean, you've certainly been increasingly active, I should say, with the homeless community in Los Angeles. And so in a way, that might be very cathartic and a beautiful gift that your father gave you, which has had this ripple effect to helping other people. Yeah. I think a huge part of why I am really motivated to help the houseless and the homeless and the most at-risk people in LA is because not just to honor his memory per se, because that feels very, I don't know, pedantic in a way of like, I'm honoring my dad's memory, but in a way by seeing and feeling and knowing the conditions he was living in, it deepens my sense of compassion and deepens my sense of humanity around the citizens that are often people mostly treat homeless and houseless people as throwaway. You know, we don't really acknowledge their humanity. We don't really acknowledge the depth of their character. And there are so many assumptions made about homeless and houseless people that they're derelict, they're drug addicts, they're mentally unstable. But I've met and talked to so many by going out and feeding them and bringing them medical supplies. Our our dear friend, Nicole Dursway, who we've also had as a guest here, we can link to her episode as well. She has a great new nonprofit called The Martha Project, and it's 
providing healthy, organic, plant-based meals and medical supplies and necessities to the houseless population of LA. And that's been, first of all, we love and adore her. She's one of our greatest friends. But it makes me feel like I am giving humanity and love and nourishment to this segment of the population that is not honored and not respected. And in my heart, I guess in a way that is me doing what I wish I would have done more for my dad when he was alive. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting to reflect on all of this and the different ways that we've been impacted by our fathers. And I also hope that this has given our, our listener the chance to reflect on the same things and how your father has impacted you. And some of us are blessed to have great relationships with our fathers. Sometimes they stay in our lives for a long time. And some people don't have good relationships with their fathers or their fathers passed away very early on, or maybe they never even met them. Each of us have different relationships there and sometimes father figures, as Jason has discussed here. So whatever the word father means to you, and and maybe it's also the father of your child if you're a parent. There's just so many dynamics here. And I think trying to be inclusive when it comes to a celebrating day like Father's Day, you know, what that means for you, what that triggers within you, whether it's something like sadness or reflection and gratitude, happiness, joy, all of these different emotions that can come up for us. And I hope that this conversation has not only taught you more about each of us, Jason and I and our fathers, but also given you just some things to reflect on. And we welcome you to join the conversation if you would like to share anything about that and what Father's Day means to you, if anything, or the impact that fathers have had on your life. Or may- maybe you are a father listening. You know, that's that's a possibility as well, too. I don't know why I didn't think of that. But um, we would love to hear from you. We are here to continue the conversation after and in between every episode you can find us through the website at wellevator.com. There's a comment section in the show notes of every single episode where you can share your thoughts and your input. You can reach us publicly through our social media, which is at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, even TikTok. We haven't been doing much over there, but you can still see the videos that we've done and maybe we'll do a little bit more. And you can also reach us privately through direct message and email as well, which is hello at wellevator.com. We would love to hear from you in whatever capacity you'd like to reach out. It's very important for us to continue the conversation, to have you feel part of this, have your voice be heard, and whatever you would like to share with us, we really look forward to connecting with you on a deeper level. Thank you so much for listening. As we wrap up, Jason, is the story that you wanted to share about your mom? Uh, <laughs> a short one that we should share here or should we like yeah. use it for a future episode? No, let's share it here. Know. Okay, let's hear it. Let's share it here. Okay. So early slash mid 70s, my mom and dad are living in LA, as I mentioned, North Hollywood, Beachwood Canyon. My dad had a propensity to dress in army fatigues for some reason. And one of the neighbors had observed that in our apartment, apparently passing by, my dad had hung a gas mask on the wall. And so here's how it goes. My dad's dressing in army fatigues. It's the early 70s, sees a gas mask on the wall. And my mom at that time was a spitting image for Patty Hearst, who was kidnapped 
and then later became a, how do you say this, an ally of during her kidnapping with the Symbionese Liberation Army, which was kind of an offshoot of the Black Panther uprising at that time of like black power and and making sure the people of color had rights, which is really interesting to think about the timing of when we're recording this episode. So the neighbor calls the frickin' FBI because they think that my mom is Patty Hearst and she's being held against her will in an apartment in Hollywood. <laughs> so the story goes- Oh my gosh. That the FBI <laughs> comes to investigate Patty Hearst being kidnapped by, apparently she thought my dad was a member of the Symbionese Liberation Army. And <laughs> they come and they're like, she's not Patty Hearst. <laughs> so this neighbor was convinced my mom was kidnapped Patty Hearst at that time. And for anyone who wants to learn the backstory, Patty Hearst was the heir to the Hearst Publishing Corporation, one of, one of the richest men in the world. And she was kidnapped and held for ransom and then later decided to be an ally of and turn to sympathize and empathize with that movement. So that's a longer story. We can link to that story in the show notes as well. But my mom is not Patty Hearst, although one time she was mistaken for her and the FBI was called on my parents. That sounds kind of like a a compliment and like a cool little part of history. You know what? There's so many other interesting stories that I have honestly at times thought about writing a screenplay about my dad's life because there are so many other stories we can't get to right now that, oh boy, it is like stranger than fiction type stuff. That's just one of the many stories. Hey, I, I think that'd be really cool. And maybe our listeners could chime in and let us know if they'd like that to happen. You never know, right? Well, crazier things have happened. And if I become a screenwriter and end up playing my dad on film, hey, (laughs) that could be a really good catharsis, actually, writing a screenplay and playing my dad on screen. Well, it's like Honey Boy. Did did you see Honey Boy? I didn't. I mean, that's basically writing out the history that you have with your father and then playing him, although that one was certainly a, a really heart wrenching story. And it was a hard movie to watch, to be honest but really fascinating for sure. Well, who knows where these tangential creative paths are taking us, but dear listener, we appreciate you being with us and being on all these divergent tangent paths. And I have a bulldog crashing my door down in the podcast studio. (laughs) Speaking of being a dad, you got to go be an animal dad right now. I do. It is past dinner time and they damn well know it. Yeah. (laughs) So until next time, thanks for getting uncomfortable with us. Thanks so much, Wit. And we will be with you again soon. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.